Our gracious Father, when we think about your great character, your love, your holiness, your righteousness, Father, your justice, your perfection, God, we worship you for who you are. When we think about all you've done, Father, from creating and sustaining all that we are, sustaining all of the universe, God sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins and rise again, and that even right here and right now, you're here with us because you love us. So I pray, Father, that you would guide us, that we would take a moment and just be aware of your presence right now, that we would bask in your greatness, and that we would honor you as we study your word as an act of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been moving oh so slowly through chapter 8 of Luke's Gospel. We come today to an event that is recorded multiple times for us in the Gospels. It's also recorded in Matthew chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 4. So let's read it and then I'll finish the introduction. Um, now it happened, verse 22 of Luke chapter 8, Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. I think the question that Jesus asks his disciples in verse 25 is one of, if not the most, important questions any of us can be asked and that any of us will ever answer. That's why I titled the message, Where is your faith? And we're going to get into that in a little bit. And as you well know, there is only one correct answer to that question. We can answer it many different ways, but there's only one answer that's right. But let's start back in verse 22, all the way back, right? We went to verse 25. So if you can find your way all the way back to verse 22, it happened on a certain day. He got onto a boat with his disciples and he said, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. We're not told when the day was, but Matthew places Jesus in Capernaum before this event. So that's where they were launching out from. Jesus gets into the boat and he goes, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. Now, why is that statement so important? Because Jesus did not say, let's go out into the middle of the lake and drown in a storm. Would have been a very, very, I mean, the Gospels would have all ended right there. But that's not what he said. What did he say? Let's go across to the other side of the lake. When God tells us we are going somewhere, 
We can trust that he is going to get us there. I love that idea or that thought. Because it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And that's what the storm's about. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, if God says you're going, you're going. We were talking uh, in Acts this, or in, not in Acts, but uh, in Sunday school this morning, about various instances when angels showed up to help people. And one of them that we talked about was Paul in Acts chapter 27. If you remember, God told Paul he was going to Rome. Well, he got arrested and the Jews tried to kill him. Then they plotted to kill him and Paul's nephew told the guard and they sent Paul down to, um, is it Caesarea? Something like that. So while Paul's there, he gets left in prison because the, the governor was hoping to get a bribe. A new governor shows up. He doesn't know what to do with Paul. And so finally, wanting to leave Paul in prison, he goes, well, let's go back up to Jerusalem. And going back up to Jerusalem, he knew that people there were plotting to kill him, so he appeals to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. So from that point, the guy says, fine. He sends him off. So he gets in a boat, and he starts heading to Rome. Right? And it's a nice, smooth sail. It's like a cruise. Right? They're, they're playing shuffleboard on the, on the Lido deck, sitting in the spa. No, they're not doing anything like that. But along the way, they hit a storm. They get to a point where they spend 40 days without eating. They have two weeks of utter darkness because the storm is so fierce. They finally, they take the sails down. They tie the rudder off or they tie the wheel off so the rudder can't be moved. And they just pray that they don't run into something. Now, what do you think Paul was thinking? Do you think he was like the disciples? So, Master, don't you care? I thought you said I was going to Rome. He's fine. He even gets to a point where he gives them a little told you, I told you so, which is so cool. You know, if you'd listened to me and we'd stayed at this other port, none of this would have happened. But then he says, an angel of the, of the Lord stood by me this night and told me that we were going to run aground on a certain island and that I was going to live, and he was going to give me everybody else on the ship. So he broke bread, prayed, they ate, they ran aground on a little island called Malta because God had a job for Paul there before he eventually made it to Rome. But what happened to Paul? He made it to Rome. Plots to murder him, beatings, being left in prison for a couple of years, corrupt politicians, and a storm that sank the ship he was on. But God said... You're going to Rome. And when God tells us we're going somewhere, we can trust that he's going to get us there. Now, this is applicable to us in two ways. One here on earth and one for eternity. I won't have you turn there because it's a long tale, but I would highly encourage you when you have the opportunity to go read John chapter 11. I'm going to pop over there because I want to point out just a couple verses. But in John chapter 11, we have the death of Lazarus and then the resurrection of Lazarus. I'm going to point out a couple verses. So in verse 4, uh, he knew that Lazarus was sick. And it said, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not to death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. When you jump up to verse 14, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let's go to get him. Well, then in verse 25, he gets there, 
And Martha says, you know, if only you'd been here, right? Both Martha and Mary say that to him. And in verse 25, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then you jump all the way up to verse 40, and what happens? Did I, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, why do I bring this particular account up? When Jesus found out, he said, we're going to wait. And his disciples said, well, okay. And then a couple days go by, and he goes, well, maybe we should head over there. And they, and they said, you know, he tells his disciples, Lazarus is sleeping. Oh, well, if he's sleeping, isn't that good? And he goes, Lazarus is dead. And then they said, well, don't you know that they tried to kill you a couple of days ago when we were over in that general area? Why are you going to go that again? And my favorite quote, well, actually, besides I'm the resurrection and the life, that's my favorite quote there. Um, my second favorite quote is when Thomas says, well, we might as well go with him and die. Right? Because Thomas thought that if they went back there, they were going to get killed. And Jesus said, nope, we're going to be fine. And he sees Martha and he sees Mary and he says, just believe and you'll see the glory of God. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? But do you think that that whole thing took place the way Mary and Martha had hoped it would? They really wanted Jesus to come. That's why they sent to him four days earlier. He waited so Lazarus would die. Oh. How often... Does God have some kind of plan for our lives, some kind of purpose that he set before us? And we think, well, great, you want me to do this? I'm, I'm at point A, I'm going to get to point B, and it's going to be awesome. We're all, we, we all know that's not how life happens, right? That's not news to anybody. And we sometimes get angry with God when it doesn't work out the way we think it should. But I'll submit this to you. Mary and Martha wanted a healing. And there's nothing wrong with that. We are encouraged to pray for healing. In James chapter 5, we're encouraged to pray for each other for healing. And Mary and Martha wanted a healing and they asked for it. And Jesus said no. Now he didn't say it out loud, but how did he say no? He didn't go. Right away, he waited four days. Because sometimes when we want a healing, he wants a resurrection. Now, healing is awesome, but resurrection is better. Healing may be the restoration of a broken life. Resurrection, new life. It's beautiful. And we have to learn, and I say this fully aware that I don't do it very well, but we have to learn to trust that what God is doing is always going to be what's best. Maybe not in the time we like. Maybe not in the way we like. Maybe not even with the outcomes we would like. But he is always going to do what's best. And I'll tell you, if you're waiting for a healing and it hasn't happened, maybe you need to start looking for the resurrection. 
And I know, that sounds generic, right? You can put it on the, put it on a fortune cookie at a Christian Chinese food restaurant. I don't know. Just as a quick aside, I love Chinese food. And have you ever, I don't know if you've had Chinese food recently, but every time I get a fortune cookie, it's stupid. They, you, at least it looked, felt like they tried, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Now they're like, oh, just write something on there. Who cares? That's just my take on it. But we have to trust that not only is he going to get us where he said we're going, but when he does it his way, and that way doesn't meet our expectations, that's okay. Because he's got it planned out. He knows what he's doing. Now, that applies also then to us eternally. Now, if you want to join me in John 14, this is just a few verses we're going to read. Because we have an amazing promise in John 14 about God getting us where we need to go. John 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. I'm going to read the next verse because it's so cool. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient. Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? And he goes on from there. But here's the beautiful thing, right? My statement, very simply, is that when God tells us we're going somewhere, we can trust that he's going to get us there. That applies here, and it applies eternally. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Yes, I'm going away. Do you think that's what the disciples wanted? Do you think they wanted Jesus to leave? Of course not. After the resurrection, he spent uh, 40 days with them, a month and a half, give or take. And, and he was, they were probably just so ecstatic. And he goes, but I've got to go. And when you go read the first chapter of the book of Acts, and the, well, the last chapter of Luke and the first chapter of the book of Acts both depict this, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, and they sit there staring into the sky. Now, I don't blame them for that. If I saw Jesus ascend into the clouds, I probably would stand there and stare for a while too. But then an angel appears next to them and says, what are you doing? Right? That's if you read the Message Bible. What are you doing? The same Jesus who you just saw, he's coming back. Now go do what he told you to do. And so then they went and they prayed and they waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit 10 days later on Pentecost. But then all of them, except for John, died horrific deaths. Without question, without recant. Why? Because they believed this simple promise. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Yeah, life is hard. Sometimes it sucks. Sometimes we have an awful day, an awful week, an awful month, an awful year. 
an awful decade. I don't know. And, and it, it's not always rainbows and unicorns and puppy dogs and, and cotton candy. Right? Sometimes it's deep, dark valleys with jagged rocks. Sometimes it's horrible storms where we are scared to death. Sometimes it's tragedy. Sometimes it's our own failure. And we have a very beautiful promise. I'm going to get you there. I'm going to get you there. There's a beautiful song. Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman uh, wrote a song. on. It's on his latest album called uh, Don't Lose Heart. And there's a section in that song, in the chorus, where he said, I know it gets hard. I know it gets dark. But we're going to make it home. We're going to make it home. He's going to get us there. He has promised that he's going to get us there. We sang a song this morning where one of the verses talks about he will not lose us. And he won't. He's going to get us home. Verse 23. Oh, I'm in the book of John. I could read verse 23. Um, As they sailed, he fell asleep. Uh, I had a friend of mine point out that in one of the other Gospels, it says that he fell asleep on a pillow, which means if he had a pillow, he was probably intending on taking a nap. Um, But it says he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy, and they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. So as they went, a storm arose. And I submit to you that this would have been an incredible storm. And this is why I submit that to you. We know at least four of them, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen, right? They spent their lives on this body of water. And they were so fearful that they woke Jesus up. In Mark's gospel, we're told that they asked Jesus if he even cares that they're about to die. And so this must have been just a, a serious storm for them to be that afraid. He wakes up, he rebukes the wind, and it ceases. And I love the word rebuke here. You know, oftentimes when we think of the word rebuke, right, you correct somebody. Somebody says something like, oh, you shouldn't say that. Or, oh, you shouldn't talk about it. Or, don't talk back to your mother. Or, whatever. Um, But the word here can literally be translated as forbid. And that's different. You can rebuke somebody, tell them they did something wrong, tell them you don't like their attitude. But to forbid something, you have to have authority over it. And here, he stands up and he forbids the storm. And only the creator of all things could forbid the wind from blowing. It's the only one who could do that. So let's look at a couple of things. Yes, he was asleep. Now, I can't sleep on a plane. I can't sleep in a car, especially if my wife's driving. I can't sleep. If, I mean, if, if I'm moving in some way, I can't sleep. I don't know why. We one time, we went on a trip, and we decided, this is what we're going to do, because it was a short trip, we only had three days, Um, and so we took a midnight flight, so we would get there in the morning, and we could spend that day, knowing we'd be tired, 
But my wife conked out next to me, and I stayed there on an 11-hour flight watching movies. Now, just to make it better, you guys ever heard of Tylenol PM? Right? They give you a little bit of Tylenol, and then it's got a little sleep aid in it. I took two of them, and I sat there awake watching movies. Could not fall asleep. It was a awful. Oh. So we got there. I think we took like a two-hour nap, and off we went. I didn't care. But Jesus, he falls asleep in a boat that's open, right? You've seen the type of fishing boats they had. It's a big rowboat or a small sailboat, however you look at it. Now, not only is this boat open and it's pouring rain and the wind is blowing, they're in the middle of a storm, the thing's being rocked, it's filling with water, and he's in the back, just, just asleep, to the point that they had to wake him up. How was he asleep? Well, he trusted his father. He knew it wasn't time. He knew that he had more things to accomplish. He knew they were going to the other side. So why not take a nap? Why not? I have in here Matthew 6, 25 through 34, which is Jesus basically a teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount to not worry about stuff. And he just says it so beautifully that I need to read it. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap. They don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And listen to this statement. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 27. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Do you think if you worry you're going to get taller? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow they neither toil or spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, right? We can see that all around us right now, right? All the aspens changing color, and it's beautiful, but what's happening? Those leaves are dying and falling off. Now, because of the way God created things, they're coming back next year. Beautiful cycle of nature teaches us about resurrection. But he says, if that's how he takes care of the flowers, don't you think he's going to clothe you? Oh, you of little faith? So he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. This is what the Gentiles do. Your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. And don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, clear, simple, beautiful teaching filled with promises of God's care for us. So all of us will wake up tomorrow morning without being worried about anything, right? Yeah. Would be nice. And when we look at it, the logic is completely sound, isn't it? The birds eat. Why are we worried about what we're going to eat? The flowers are clothed. Why are we worried about what we're going to put on? What should we do? Seek his kingdom first. And then he'll take care of everything else because he already knows that we need it. Now it says they were in jeopardy. 
or your Bible, your translation may say they were in danger. And so I have no doubt that this storm was fierce enough to actually sink the ship. I don't. They knew. That's why they were afraid. And it leads me to this simple statement. Just because we're going exactly where God wants us to go, and he has promised to get us there, doesn't mean it's going to be easy. John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3, 12, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And in our culture, our westernized version of Christianity, we get this idea that it should be easy. We get this idea that, you know, I'm a Christian. That means I should have plenty of money. I should never get sick. My kids are always going to behave. I'm never going to have any issues or problems or blah, 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 blah. And it's a lie. The Bible tells us the exact opposite. Jesus said to his disciples, when speaking of his impending torture and death, he says, if they're going to do that to me, they're going to do it to you. Now in our culture, most of us aren't going to go out tomorrow morning and have to fear that we're going to be killed for our faith. I mean, there are people around the world where Sunday has already passed and they met their Sunday morning service, fully aware that if they got caught, they would be in prison or killed. And we get to come here, and, you know, we got nice, soft, cushy chairs. Which, and this is not a complaint. I'm thankful for chairs, right? The heat was on this morning. woo We got a roof over our heads. We do not have to worry, at least right now, that anybody's going to come busting through that door and arrest all of us for meeting to worship our king. We don't have to worry about that. So he comes after us in different ways. What does he come after us with? I'm talking about our enemy. Right? He comes after us with lies. He comes after us with temptation. And oh, the temptation in our country. I'm going to tell you this, and I don't even want to say this out loud, but I shared this with my wife last night. Um, for some reason, Facebook knows I'm a 46-year-old man. So I get really weird ads for them, you know, wanting to sell me testosterone and are you going bald? Do you want something for your hair? You know, um, I get really weird ads. That's why I try to stay off Facebook. Well, I opened an ad the other day. Or not, oh, I didn't open an ad. Sorry. Blah. I take that back because when I tell you what the ad was, you're going to be like, why did you open it? I didn't. I was scrolling through Facebook and I got an ad and the line do you suffer from erectile dysfunction? Oh my word. I'd... And the picture underneath it was pornography. Just straight up in my feed. I didn't even have to click anything. And so I put together little three dots. I pushed it. I reported it to Facebook. Right? This is, shouldn't be showing up anywhere because there's kids on Facebook. You don't even have to look for it. It's delivered to their phones. I had six more just like it. 
I reported them all and I closed Facebook out and put my phone down. I'm like, this is disgusting. He doesn't even hide. He doesn't even pretend. I mean, the stuff that people used to go into back alleys so that they could hide from the rest of the world what they were doing is now an advertisement on Facebook. Well, isn't it supposed to be easy? No. It's not supposed to be easy. It will be worth it. And you want to know why that showed up in my feed and maybe not yours? Is it because of Facebook's algorithm? No. It's because of that jerk who is our enemy. He knows what I struggle with. He knows how to come after me. And I am grateful that I did not stumble into it. I did not fall. I didn't go like, yeah, I need ED pills. No, I didn't do anything like that. I reported it and I tried to get away from it and I shut it off. But it, it was, it's like, oh my gosh, I don't, this is really bothering me. Just, can you tell? It's just really bothering me that that would just show up because my enemy knows what I struggle with. It's the same reason cupcakes are always on sale when I'm at the store. Now, granted, giving into the cupcakes isn't as bad. But every time I go to the store, right, I get in the back of my head. I'm going to go to the store. Yeah, maybe I'll get a chocolate bar so we have chocolate to nibble on or whatever. And I get there. And it's not just, you know what it was this week? 40 Rice Krispie treats in a pretty blue box for six bucks. Well, how do I pass that up? So I got a box of 40 Rice Krispie treats in my pantry at home. I've eaten one. I've only eaten one. So far. <laughs> so far. Right? But he knows how to come after me. Do you ever wonder why broccoli's not on sale? At least not for me. I don't ever go to the score. Wow, broccoli's on sale. I'll get a bunch. No, it's always the cupcakes. Because he knows how to get me. I had a point. It's not going to be easy. What did they do? What did they do? They cried out to God. Now, I don't think when Jesus asks where their faith is in verse 25 that it's a rebuke. I don't think he's rebuking them for waking him up. Because we are encouraged that when we are afraid, when we are struggling, when we are having difficulty, we are told to cry out to our God. Psalm 142 verse 1 says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we're told, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He encourages us to. So I don't think he was rebuking them for waking him up. Now I'm going to make one more point, and then we're going to get to verse 25. Jesus was always in control. He was always in control. I don't think Jesus ever did or does now anything on accident. I'm not sure why he decided to take a nap. Maybe he was tired. Maybe it was a test. I don't know. And that's okay, right? There's, we're allowed to not know things. And so when we don't know, we fall back on what we do know. And what we do know is that Jesus was never out of control. And he demonstrated that by answering their request. Now, there are moments 
when we are not in control. And if we're really honest about it, it's most of the time. You meet, I, I talk to people, I read books, I do all kinds of stuff like that, and you're always hearing about people saying, well, you need to, there's certain aspects of your life that you can control and you should work on it. Yeah, I don't have to eat the cupcake. I'm going to, but I don't have to eat the cupcake. But in reality, just imagine all the things that are not in our control. Okay, don't do that. You'll get sad and anxious. Because there's so much in this life that's so far out of our control. But he is never out of control. Isn't that a comforting thought? It's kind of like when you're, when you're real little. I used to have night terrors. Right? Night terrors. And I don't know why, for some reason, I thought if I ran to my parents' room and snuggled next to my mother, that would make it better. But I had this thought, as a child, that she could take care of it. Could she stop my night terrors? Well, of course not. I still found comfort. Thank you, Mommy. I love you. Today, it's no different. I usually don't snuggle with my mom anymore. It's a long drive. But I can come to my father. I can know he's in control. And instead of bring, being afraid, we can trust and rest in that fact. A couple verses I'll share on that. First Chronicles 29. 11 through 13. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your right hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O our God, and we praise your glorious name. What does that verse say? It's all his, and he'll take care of it. I know that's a really simplified version, but that's what it says. We love Romans 8, 28. I've added verse 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many love this. So we could go back to Matthew 6 where we're told we're greater value than the birds. You can go up to Matthew 10.30 where we're told that his love for us is so great that the hairs of our head are numbered. And he told us in the middle of instruction concerning persecution to his disciples that we would face the same. And so there's four things that summarize these verses and then we'll get to the last one. One, we will get where God wants us to go. Two, there will be real difficulty on the way. Three, when we face that difficulty, we can cry out in prayer, knowing that he will answer. And four, we can know that no matter what happens, God is in control. We may not always understand it. We may not always like it, but it doesn't change the truth. And so that takes us to verse 25. And in verse 25, he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water to obey him. Now we know who he is. 
He is God, the creator of all things, and that's why he could forbid the wind to blow. But he asks them this question, where is your faith? And we have looked at the word faith on numerous occasions. It's the word pistis in Greek. It means belief, faith, or assurance. It is most accurately represented by the definition of reliance upon Christ for salvation. And as I said before, I don't think this question, him asking them this, was a rebuke for waking him up. Yes, they were afraid, and we know that fear and faith cannot coexist. But I think the problem is, why he asked the question this way, is because of the wrong places we can put our faith. So I only listed three, and I think they are quite encompassing. Wrong places we can put our faith, and I encourage you to look up these verses when you get home, or at some point this week. Sometimes we can place our faith in other people. Psalm 20, verse 7, and Isaiah 31, 1. Now, I'm not saying we should never trust anybody. All right, sometimes. Right, no, I'm not saying that. It's not that we should never trust anybody. But what I'm saying is we don't put our faith in them. I love you all. My faith is not in any of you. Don't feel bad. And if your faith is in me, you need to fix that real quick. Y'all know me pretty well by now. Don't trust in me. I'm like you. We're all sinners. We're all on this journey together. And together, we place our faith in him. But don't place your faith in me. In what ways do people put their faith in other people? Right? Maybe it's pastors. Maybe it's religious leaders. Maybe it's media outlets. If you trust the news, oh, are you going to be let down? Government. Remember Ronald Reagan's famous line? The eight scariest words in the human language? I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Yeah. I mean, I'm thankful that we have, well, I was going to say I'm thankful we have a functioning government, but I'm not sure that's accurate. Um, we have a government, <laughs> right? They're doing something. But we don't put our trust in them. That's, there was a, oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble, but that's okay. There was a lot of people who put their faith in Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump did some good things for our nation when he was our president. But why would you put your faith in the orange man? I always thought that was funny that they called him the orange man. Why would you put your faith in that? He's a human being. And even if Donald Trump was the greatest president to ever live, which I don't necessarily think is the case, but even if he was, you don't put your faith in him. And then there was a bunch of people that they wanted him gone and they put their faith in Joe Biden. And I pray for our president. I prayed for Trump. I prayed for Biden. I prayed for Obama. I pray for all of our presidents. Why? Because I agree with everything they do? No, because the Bible told me to. But I don't put my faith in any of them. We put our faith in God. When we put our faith in people, we will be let down. Or how about putting your faith in yourself? Oh my goodness, it is so popular today, isn't it? Trust in yourself. Trust in your heart. Believe in yourself. 
Proverbs 14, 12, 2 Corinthians 1, 9. My favorite of all of them, Proverbs 28, 26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Why? Because we know from James 17 that our hearts are wicked. Don't trust in yourself. I mean, really, you know yourself. I know myself. I don't trust in me because if I trust in me, not only am I going to let me down, I'm going to let everybody else down too. Then there are those who trust in money and powerful in power and influence, which James tells us is just, just flies away like a bird. None of it matters. Yes, Jesus asked this question with an identification of their fear in the other gospel accounts. The way Luke writes it, they were afraid. But what this tells me is that fear will arise from placing our faith in the wrong thing. That's when fear arises. Maybe they were trusting in their skills as a sailor. Maybe they trusted in their reading of the weather, right? They'd been on that lake or the sea their whole life. And maybe they saw the storm coming. Oh, yeah, it's going to blow by. Or it's going to go that way. Or it's not going to be that bad. Or you know what? It's not a big deal. We know how to sail this boat. It won't be a problem. I don't know. But what I can say without hesitation is that when we trust in the wrong thing, that's going to lead to fear. Because somewhere inside, we know that that will let us down. So where is your faith? This is the question. And there's only one place that we can put our faith where we will never be disappointed. There is only one God whom we can believe in and trust, knowing that he will never let us go and will never fail us. Things may not always happen the way we want them to. There will be difficulty in life. There will be questions that we will never have answered. And there will be things that we never understand this side of heaven. And I know that's hard. I know it's hard because I have the same things. There's things I don't understand. There's questions I have that God has chosen not to answer. There's healing that I've prayed for that he has chosen not to give me. So what do we do with it? Do we get mad at him? Well, he can take it if we do. You'll probably need to apologize later, but he can take it if we do. But we trust him. We believe in God through Jesus Christ. And when we do that, our faith will be immovable. I want you to turn with me real quick to Psalm 46. And then we're going to close. Psalm 46. It's a short psalm and it says this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the work 
in the earth, sorry. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. That's why we place our faith in him and nowhere else. As we close, whatever we are facing, whatever difficulty, victory, decision, or trial, God will always be with us. And when we place our faith in him, he will always get us over to the other side. We can learn from him. We can rest in him. And even when things are hard, then we can call to him, knowing he will answer in the midst of every danger. We can trust that as he is in control of everything that we will ever face. Think about this real quick. Whenever we get to something that's hard, that's difficult, that's horrible, that we hate, that we don't want to deal with, he's already there. He goes before us. He hedges us in behind. He's already there. We will never face anything alone. This is why he says to each of us, from Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's one of my favorite verses. So three questions and we're done. Question number the first one. Where is your faith in regard to eternity? Now I know everybody here. I think pretty much everybody here is saved. If you're not, you better come talk to me about it. But have you placed your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for your forgiveness, redemption, and salvation? If you're here and you're not sure, come and talk to me. If you're listening online or listening to this recording, go to our website, newsongunnison.net. Visit our Facebook page, NSCF Gunnison. Let us know. We would love to help you know Jesus. My second question. What is it that you need God to get you to the other side of? Now, when I wrote that question down, I had several answers. Several things I need God to get me to the other side of right now. But are we seeking him for it? Are we trusting him for it? Do we believe that he'll get us to the other side? And if not, you got to ask yourself, what's holding you back? I have to ask myself, what's holding me back? And finally, if you did some honest self-reflection... Would you discover that you have placed your faith in something besides Jesus? And I'm not saying you're not a Christian or that you're in idolatry. I'm not saying anything like that. Or if you are, you've got to deal with that. But I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is it's just so easy to trust in something that's not him. And it's easy to identify. Take a moment and think about what you are fearing right now. Because whatever it is you're fearing is a place where you're probably not trusting God the way you should.
And I say you a lot because I don't want to think about it. Because there's fear in my life. There's places where I am not trusting God the way I should. So what do we do with it? Repent. Take one step back towards him. And he will meet us there with open arms. And then we'll know that he's going to take care of it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for the great and wonderful truth you give us in your word. And God, you know it's not easy. That's why you told us that it wouldn't be. You know our struggles. You know our failures. You know our fears. But you love us anyway. And you promise to love us through it and get us to the other side. And whether that's major issues in life, like where we'll spend eternity, you've promised that. And even if it's the small things, you tell us, you take care of the birds of the air. You love us a lot more than them. So whatever it is, Father, you know what it is for me. You know what it is for each of us. Help us to lay it down at your throne. To worship you for who you are for all that you have done, for all that you are doing. And God, we worship you for what you will do. Even though we don't see it yet, even though it's not in our hand at this moment, we know you're going to do what's best. And we trust you with it. In Jesus' name, amen.